Ruth chapter 2. So I'll catch us up a little bit. As I said last week, the book of Ruth is a prodigal story, you know, like the story in the New Testament Jesus tells of the lost son. It's a prodigal story, a story in which a daughter goes out full and returns home humiliated and empty only to be lavishly restored by a prodigal father. The story follows God's familiar pattern of what? Death and resurrection. He, it follows God's familiar pattern of division and restoration, of separation and redemption. Fertility made barrenness, made fruitfulness in the end. So the story points us to Christ and to the good news of God's sovereign grace. And even further, for those of us who are in Christ, the story follows that pattern of death and resurrection, so it instructs us how to live. It instructs us how to think as we experience those same patterns that God weaves throughout our lives. Death and resurrection, division and restoration. So to recap what we covered already from Ruth chapter 1, Naomi and her husband and her two sons go to sojourn in the land of Moab. And it's significant. Why? Because they are Israelites. And Israelites don't go to Moab. They, the, uh, the Moabites were enemies of Israel, and so this was strange already. When Naomi's husband dies, her two sons take Moabite wives, and then after 10 years of marriage and 10 years of barrenness, no children, 10 years, the two sons die. So it leaves Naomi with only two Moabite daughters-in-law, and she urges them to go back to their mother's house to find husbands, and one leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. And we see that instead of simply being a case of charity on the part of Ruth, what she's actually doing is insisting on being a part of Naomi's family, and she's insisting on being a part of Naomi's lineage, her line. And, and this is where we see Ruth famously say, you know, the most beautiful words I think ever written, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So we see in chapter one, Naomi sees only bitterness as they return to Bethlehem. But the author, the narrator here, gives us this shimmer of hope and he says at the end of chapter one, it was the beginning of barley harvest. Close scene. Okay, so here we are in chapter two. Let's pray and uh, read chapter two. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open your word this morning, you would open our hearts. We ask that as we read your word this morning, that it would read us. As we search it this morning, search us and know us. Your word is truth, so teach us, God. 
For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Ruth chapter two, this is the word of the Lord. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who, is, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And now you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for, I have, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And he had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother, mother-in-law. Okay. 
That's chapter two. That's the end of scene two. So what we see here, before, before they go back to Bethlehem, Naomi gives this impression, and maybe she forgot, or maybe she was just too bitter and blind to see it. But she gives this impression that there's no kinsman for Ruth to marry. There's no way, there's no way for Ruth to stay a part of Naomi's family, of the family of Elimelech. And we see here just how blind Naomi was, not only because there was a relative, we see this, how blind Naomi was because uh, the relative, Boaz, that Naomi forgot about, it says is a worthy man. It's not just, I guess you could marry that guy. He's a worthy man, it says. So in ancient Israel, names mean a lot more than they do in our culture today. So people were were named prophetically. They were given a name with a purpose and a meaning and named prophetically. It's not really like that so much in our culture. If it sounds cool, we go with it. But um, in that culture, it was a purposeful, meaningful, prophetic name that was given. And so they wouldn't just hear, uh, you know, Naomi, for example. They wouldn't just hear Naomi as an abstract title. You know, oh, we call that that human Naomi. It's not just an abstract title. When they would, when 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 they would say Naomi, Naomi would hear pleasant one. They would say pleasant one. Okay, they wouldn't just hear an abstract title. And so when she comes back to Bethlehem, and the women are saying, "Is this Naomi?" She says, uh, "Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me that." Why? Well, remember, this is a prodigal story. And so just like uh, the younger son comes home, what does he do? He tells his father, I don't want to be what I was before. I can't be what I was before. I've got to be something new, something different. This is the same thing Naomi does. She comes home, she returns, insisting on being something different, insisting on being something else. I'm not Naomi. Don't call me the pleasant one. Call me the bitter one. But here in chapter 2, we're also introduced to another character, Boaz. Boaz, his name means strength. Boaz, his name means strength. But the narrator here doesn't just leave it to his name alone to tell us about Boaz. The narrator actually says, uh, in the translation that I read, he, he zooms in, he says he was a worthy man. He zooms in and he says, he was a worthy man. That, that phrase, I'm going to tell you what it is in the Hebrew. Gibor Hayil. I'm going to tell you that in the Hebrew because it, I'll, you'll see later on why I'm going to say the Hebrew. Gibor Hayil. So he says he was a worthy man, a Gibor Hayil. This Hebrew phrase, Gibor Hayil, is translated a few different ways. It's uh, in, in uh, 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. It's translated, mighty man of power. In uh, 1 Samuel 16, 18, this phrase, Gabor Hayil, is translated, mighty man of valor, or mighty valiant man. In Judges 6, 12, it's translated, mighty man of valor, or mighty warrior, depending on your translation. But it's, this, it's, it's on all these cases and in others, it's this Hebrew phrase, Gabor Hayil. Boaz was a Gabor Hayil. What's interesting, what's important about these words, Gabor and Hayil, these two different words, they both correspond to strength, okay? Gabor means mighty, basically, and Hayil is to be firm or strong. So we got two different words who correspond to strength or might. So 
Boaz, names means what? Strength. And the, and the narrator tells us Boaz was a Gabor Ha'il. So what is he telling us here? Well, it's basically like he's emphasizing it that, that we would hear he, this man is a man of powerfully powerful strength. Boaz, strength, a Gabor Ha'il, mighty, strong man. Boaz, powerfully powerful strength. So there is this obvious emphasis being placed on Boaz and, and, and his name and, and what he is like. So what do you think is going on? What, what are we being led to understand or what are we being led to assume about Boaz, about this new character introduction? So we could say that the narrator is, is just wanting to tell us how you know, terrific Boaz is. Boaz was, he was really strong. You know, he was a strong man. Or, or maybe we could say he was terrific. He was very wealthy. He was a wealthy man. Or he was um, very, a very brave man. And, and I don't think any of those would be incorrect. We know he was wealthy and, and he was probably strong, physically strong. But um, it's more than just talking about Boaz as this first-rate man, as this, you know, good suitor for Ruth. The narrator's pointing us to something else. So if you go to Judges chapter 6, verse 12, and remember Ruth takes place in the time of the Judges. So in Ruth chapter 6, verse 12, it's in the story of Gideon. What you see is the angel of the Lord, who um, is, a, is probably Christ himself, you know, before his incarnation, coming to and appearing to Gideon. And he comes to Gideon, and he tells Gideon this phrase. And I bet some of you know what phrase it is. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Or or another way to translate that. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The angel of the Lord tells Gideon, appears to Gideon, and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man. Now, uh, do you notice a resemblance here with our story in Ruth? You notice a resemblance? Besides... Mighty man, besides the second phrase, there's something about that first phrase that the angel of the Lord says to Gideon that should make us, you know, kind of little ping going off in our mind. You remember something in Ruth chapter 2? We just read it in verse 4. What does Boaz say to his workers? The Lord is with you. And in fact, he says the same exact thing that the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. The Lord is with you. Our Bibles translate it a little bit differently, but it's the same exact thing. Why is that a point? Well, it's a point because what the narrator is doing for us, he's pointing us to exactly the same thing that we see in this passage in Judges. He's pointing us to exactly the same thing. That Boaz is not just a terrific man. He's not just a strong man because his workout um, is a really good one. Boaz isn't just a terrific man because he's really got good um, business savvy. The narrator is pointing us to this truth, this reality that's true throughout the scriptures, that the, he is strong. He is a Gabor Hayil. He is Boaz, the powerfully powerful man, because he is with the Lord. Because he is with the Lord. It is not talking to us about Boaz's possession, we could say. It's talking to us about Boaz's position. It's not about his possession of strength, his possession of wealth. The narrator is pointing us to Boaz's position 
exactly in the story we read to the children today. His position in Christ. Yes, Christ. In Christ. He's not just a strong man. He is a man who is with the Lord. He is not just a strong man. He is a man who is with the Lord. He is a man who is by faith with the Lord. And therefore, Boaz is a possessor of powerfully powerful strength. This is exactly, like I said, what is taught throughout the scriptures, but this is exactly what Jesus taught us in John chapter 15, right? When he's talking about the vine and the branches, and he tells us in John 15, he says, apart from him, apart from the Lord, we can do what? Nothing. Apart from the Lord, it doesn't matter if you're a warrior named Gideon or a man named Boaz. Apart from the Lord, you can do nothing. Nothing. So the strength of Boaz had nothing to do with the man. It had nothing to do with the uh, workout or business savvy. It had everything to do with the Lord who was with him. So this relative, Boaz, is truly a man of faith who is following God. And as, we'll sh- as we're going to see as the story progresses, he is himself a type and a shadow of Christ. He is a type of Christ. So in addition to learning about Boaz then, we are also being told more and more developing that what kind of woman Ruth is. What kind of woman Ruth is. It's being fleshed out more and more in chapter two. And so we see that she works willingly with her hands. Proverbs, remember where Ruth falls in the, in the Hebrew scriptures? What does it come right after? What book? Proverbs. Yeah, isn't that so fascinating? So we end with Proverbs 31, the, the story of the virtuous woman, I'll tell you, this is going to be so great. You're going to be like, whoa, in a minute, but I'll tell you in a minute. So we end Proverbs 31, and we see this in in 13. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. Well, chapter 2 here, Ruth is, the story, the character of Ruth is being developed more and more, and what do we see? We see Ruth works willingly with her hands. She brings food from afar. We see that in Proverbs uh, 31 chapter, I mean, verse 14. She brings food from afar. We see that she is motivated, and as we've already seen, she is persistent, almost annoyingly persistent, you know? She's persistent. She's audacious, she's confident, but she's not entitled. She's humble, she's full of bold faith, and she's abundantly patient and compassionate toward Naomi, when in reality, all Ruth has to Naomi is a self-imposed obligation. Ruth has no obligation to Naomi except what she has imposed upon herself. And so we see this great compassion and patience that Ruth has demonstrated toward Naomi. But like all good heroes, this is the point, right? All good heroes do what? Lay down their lives out of compulsion? No, all good heroes, all good heroes And in this case, the heroine lay down their life freely. And this is what we see in Ruth, who is also a type of Christ. We see also Ruth is a type of Christ. So Ruth sets out and she happens to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And so what the narrator is doing here, he's got his uh, tongue firmly planted in his cheek and he's emphasizing something. What is the narrator emphasizing here by saying this? She, 
Yeah, he, say, he says, she happens to come to the field belonging to Boaz. And he's, he's being sarcastic. And, it's, and actually, we know that it is God who has sovereignly directed uh, the steps of Ruth. And so what the narrator is doing is he's, t- he's telling us exactly the opposite. He's, he's using sarcasm to say, she happens to come to the land of Ruth. Yeah, right. Of course, it wasn't an accident. Of course, it wasn't a coincidence. This is the divine providence of God. Okay, so now uh, if we go down, we see in verse five, verses 5 through 13, we see um, what Ruth starts to do, why she's there. Well, in Israel, by law, the poor could glean in fields that did not belong to them. By law, the poor could go into a field that did not belong to them and glean. Uh, it was after the harvest, the harvesters were required, again, by law, to leave the edges and the corners of their field un, uh, untouched. And they would leave behind uh, harvest for the poor. It was the welfare of the state. It was the welfare for their countrymen. They would leave behind the corners and the edges of their field. It was a law. They weren't allowed to um, completely harvest everything for for the welfare of their countrymen. And so um, we see that in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 24. You can read more about that. But something about what Ruth is doing is actually a little bit different than the welfare provision that is laid out in Israel's law. So Ruth is at Boaz's harvesting operation from early in the morning. And what we see is she's not simply asking to glean, which, which in a sense is her right, okay? In a sense, it's her right to glean, She's not just asking to glean. What she's asking is to glean among the sheaves. In other words, she wants to go and glean among the bundles that have already, that have already been gathered and set out. Okay, So they, they would go harvest the grain, they bundle up in this rough bundle, and they'd set it aside. And she says, I don't just want to go to the edges and the corners. Can I go glean here? You know, Among the bundles, among the sheaves. So she's, this is why I say she's audacious and bold. She's not entitled. She's not just walking up and doing it. She's asking, and, and it's a bold ask. So when Boaz arrives, he uh, and his workers greet one another. Ruth catches his eye, and he approaches her, and he says, Now listen, my daughter, don't go to another field. Stay with my young women and go behind them. You will be safe in my field. I have told the young men not to touch you, and when you are thirsty, go drink what the young men have drawn. Ruth is so over, overcome with the great favor of Boaz, she bows down and she essentially says, you don't even know who I am. You don't even know who I am. Why are you being so nice to me? You know, why are you being so kind? And what she didn't know is that Boaz in fact, did know who she was, right? Boaz has already heard through the grapevine about this Ruth. She's already been, uh, he's already been told the story of selfless Ruth, and uh, he's, he's already been told of her compassion toward Naomi. And so he's already impressed by her. He's already intrigued by this foreign woman, by her faith in Naomi's God. And so 
he pronounces a blessing upon Ruth and he says this, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, in James chapter two, do you remember what James chapter two is about? James chapter two is about faith and works, okay? Faith and works. James in, the, in that chapter is teaching us that faith without works is dead. Well, if you look at James chapter 2, 15 and 16, what you see is uh, he's teaching that faith without works is dead. And, and he says this, if a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In other words, don't just say, be blessed, bless them. Okay, somebody's destitute. Don't just say, be blessed. I hope everything goes well for you. Make it happen. Help, help that process, that blessing along. And what we see here, Boaz is demonstrating his faith. He's demonstrating the genuineness of his faith by not only opening his mouth to pronounce a blessing, he's demonstrating the genuineness, genuineness of his faith by opening his hands to be a blessing. He, he's essentially being the hands of God to, to bless Ruth, to, bree, to bring the blessing that he, that he pronounced upon her. And so we see that uh, he is liberally opening his hands to Ruth. You know, we see that he says, follow my women, stay in my fields all, all season. You know, if you're thirsty, my guys will get you water. Don't worry about it. Generous blessing. So we see uh, verses 14 through 23. Boaz invites Ruth to eat with his people and tells his servants to allow her. This is where he tells his servants to allow her the unusual privilege to glean among, even among the sheaves, the bundles that have already been pulled beyond her. And he even tells them, he tells his guys, and go ahead and pull some out of the sheaves and leave it for her. Talk about generosity. This is abundant generosity. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really great picture of what we've been talking about, you know, God's generosity for us. He says, yeah, let her glean among the sheaves, give her this special privilege, and don't just let her glean and have that special privilege, but he lays it on even a, another layer of generosity and says, and go back, undo what you've already done, pull some out for her and leave it. Let her gather what you've already gathered. Pull it out for her. So this is incredible generosity. And so all day, she gleans all day until evening, and she beats out what she has gleaned, and it's about 22 liters. 22 liters, that is about 30 pounds of barley. Okay? She's, she's a strong woman. Strength and dignity are her clothing. We see that in Proverbs 31 as well. So this is a, an extraordinary score for a day's work. Ruth goes home with the prize. In addition, you know, not just what she's gleaned, but she also takes the leftovers from her lunch that, that Boaz provided. And as an aside, this is why we see in the Bible, every time God provides lunch, there's leftovers. So we should always have leftovers. <laughs> always have leftovers. When Naomi learns that Ruth has been working with Boaz, it's, it's as if, I want you to just think of a statue 
that magically comes to life. This is the picture here. This is what, what happens. Naomi realizes that Ruth is working with Boaz. Like, you got quite a bit of grain. Where, you know, would you rob a bank? What happened? Where have you been working? And she says, oh, with a guy named Boaz. And she, it's like she's come to life. And this is what she says. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So you see the change taking place. Naomi, before, she could only see bitterness. She could, uh, she could not see anything, really. I mean, you could say she was blind in her darkness. She was bitter. She said, the hand of the Lord's gone out against me. Don't even call me Naomi. Don't call me what I am. Call me bitter. But now... But now, it's like you have finally, you know, remember what we talked about, the ingredients? You have the bitter and the sweet. If you dip your finger in the flour and you taste it, it's not going to be very pleasant. About the only thing you can taste is like sugar, and it's going to be nice by itself. But what God does is he takes the bitter providences, and he takes the sweet providences, and he, he, they are ingredients. And he makes this beautiful cake, right? And so what's happening here is it's like the cake is going into the oven and about halfway through, what do you start to smell? Sweetness. You start to finally smell the sweetness. And it's like, it's like finally for Naomi, the, a sweet aroma is in the air and she's beginning to realize how foolish it was for her to be so faithless. She begins to realize that this is a divine conspiracy. A divine conspiracy. It's, if we look back to Boaz's past, you'll, start, you'll see this divine conspiracy even more. So you might be surprised to find that Boaz was the son of... You ready? You ready? Boaz was the son of... Rahab, the prostitute, <laughs> the prostitute of Jericho. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. So Rahab, like Ruth, is what? A Gentile. But even more than just being a foreigner, a Gentile, even more shocking, should be shocking, she's a prostitute. A prostitute of the enemy army, <laughs> you know, a prostitute of the enemy, Jericho. So she uh, is a prostitute in that wicked and doomed city, Jericho, where, you know, the story of Jericho, Joshua, he fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. So it's this great fortified city in the promised land. We talked about that a little this morning. God brings us to the promised land. He says, now go in, here's your promise. And by the way, you got some work to do. So he, he, uh, there's this city, Jericho, this fortified city, and they are commanded, God commands Moses to uh, destroy the wicked inhabitants, to clean the, the promised land out, and, and, and with Jericho, to destroy the city and to annihilate its inhabitants. So Rahab hears this, she hears of the power of the God of Israel, and she knows that his enemies cannot withstand him. Rahab, the prostitute, in Jericho, hears of the God of Israel, 
Just like Boaz had heard of Ruth's fame, and she hears of the God of Israel, and she says, I know that no enemy of his can withstand him. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. Here I am in Jericho. I'm doomed. So she, uh, she, she hears, she's doomed. But uh, before the great battle of Jericho, and it just so happens that it's the time of barley harvest, interestingly enough, we, two Hebrew spies are sent ahead. And they just so happen to end up at Rahab's house. They just so happened to end up at Rahab's house. So Rahab recognizes that this is no accident and she begs these spies for salvation. Rahab begs the spies for salvation, for mercy. And the spies tell her to hang a scarlet cord out of her window and go gather her family inside. And they promise the spies promised that everyone who is under the crimson mark would be saved alive. Everyone who hides under the crimson mark will be saved alive. So mercy has come to Rahab and she believes. And by faith, the prostitute becomes a friend of God. She is saved from Jericho's miraculous and utter destruction. And she saves the spies. You know where she saves the spies? You know where they find refuge? They find refuge, just like Ruth, among the drying harvested bundles. She hides them under the, uh, the flax that she has laid out on her roof to dry. This is Boaz's family story. Do you see a pattern here? This is Boaz's story. This is his history. This is his family tree. His dad is a prince in Israel. His dad is a prince fighting in the battle of Jericho. And his mom is a Gentile, even a prostitute of that enemy city. And they are divinely, divinely brought together. Accident? No. Boaz is the result of that conspiracy. So Boaz knows, Boaz knows what Paul later teaches us in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul teaches that none are righteous, that no one understands, that no one seeks God. Boaz came way before Paul, but, but Boaz knew that because his mom was proof of that. And now his wife is proof of that. So Rahab and Ruth give us an extremely vivid image of that reality that these foreign women did not belong to God's people. They were outsiders. They did not seek God. But just like God does with all of his children, he pursued them. He pursued them. You remember in the story of the prodigal, what happens? The son comes back. And what does it say? While the son was a far way off, what happens? The father runs. He runs and he tackles his boy. God pursues his children. He found them. He showed them. He showed up in their far off countries. He showed up at their door and he saved. Just like he has pursued you. Just like he has showed up in your far off country and showed up at your door and he has saved you. So we're going to close 
with the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Wherefore, remember that ye being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity between the law, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enemy thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, And to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for conspiring to save us. Thank you for your abundant grace and kindness that does not leave us alone, even when that means uncomfortable seasons. God, if there are those here who are in long, dark, cold season of winter, remind them that their springtime will come. Remind them that you are only for good and glory. God, remind us that you are growing and pursue, growing us and pursuing us even when it doesn't feel like it. Lord, just as we see your divine conspiracy in the lives of Ruth and Boaz and Rahab, would you reveal to us the work of your son in our lives and through our lives, that you would be glorified in all of life and in all the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our God, our Father, invites us into his kingdom, into his house, into his table, and just like Boaz did for Ruth, He graciously feeds us. He gives us bread and wine. This reminds us of the hope that is ours, but it's more than just a reminder. When we come to this table each week, it is not just a reminder. It is a reminder, but it's more than just a reminder. It is true communion. It is communion. This table and these elements are, are some of the means that God uses to dispense and confirm grace to us. Just as Boaz gave freely to Ruth, his beloved God, our Father, freely gives to us. So Christians, come and welcome to Jesus. Come to the table.
The charge is this. Don't forget how God tells stories and what kind of stories he likes to tell the best. Death and resurrection stories. So God always saves his people, which means we're always in a mess. <laughs> he always saves his people, which means we're always in a mess. And so for his own glory and salvation, he always leads us to the edge to the edge of the cliff, to the end of ourselves, so that when we go over the edge, and that's what he intends, for us to go over the edge, he can bear us up on eagle's wings and bring us to himself. So, do not faint. Do not faint. Strengthen your feeble knees and trust in your almighty Father in his sweet and bitter providence, because he will not disappoint. He is with us, and he is our strength. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.